Hello, and welcome to Enroute, the podcast where we talk about life along the way. I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm your host. Make sure you visit our website at enroutepodcast.org, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS, so that you'll never miss a show. And while you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. Well, they say that history doesn't repeat, but it surely does rhyme. 40 years ago, conservatives in the Southern Baptist Convention began an insurgency that led to the schism, led to a schism where moderates left to create their own denominations. Now there is a new battle taking place, but this time it's not between moderates and conservatives. It's between conservatives and ultra-conservatives. This past week, some 16,000 people attended the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville. The Southern Baptist Convention is the nation's largest Protestant denomination with some 14 million members. Right now, the Southern Baptist Convention is facing a number of crises, and this past week, they were determined, this past week determined where the denomination is headed for now. The church has has been at times slow, if not blocking anything that deals with abuse in SBC congregations and institutions. They've also there's also been a fear of critical race theory that has caused a number of African-Americans to leave the denomination. On top of all of this, two high-profile members of the denomination, Speaker Beth Moore and Russell Moore, no relation, the former head of the denomination's public policy body, have left after months and years of conflict within the SBC. The Southern Baptist Convention began as a result of a split on the issue of slavery in the 1840s. Since then, the denomination has tried off and on to become more sensitive on issues of race, but there has always been those that have resisted. The election of Ed Litton as the new president means that the ultra-conservatives have lost this round of the battle. But can they still win the war? The fights going on in the SBC are somewhat similar to what's going on in the Republican Party, with a rising populist faction that is interested in amassing power instead of, in the case of the SBC, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, I'll be talking to Andrew Donaldson, the managing editor at Ordinary Times and the host of the Her Tell podcast. A native of West Virginia, Andrew has been part of Southern Baptist congregations in the past and as a fount of knowledge on the history and issues facing the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I've known Andrew for a number of years, and he has a keen sight not just on this issue, but also on other issues of politics and culture. Plus, he's an all-around good guy. We're going to conclude our interview uh, with some thoughts about Afghanistan. Andrew is also a veteran of the conflicts in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and I wanted to talk to him to get his thoughts about the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan this fall. With that, let's hear from Andrew Donaldson. 
never said that before. Okay, well, well, welcome, Andrew, to um, En Route and um, talking a little bit today about uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. And I think wanted to start this off is, what is your background with the Southern Baptists? I know you have kind of have a, a, a history with them. Right. Right. I, I didn't actually grow up Southern Baptist. Uh, where I grew up in West Virginia, very rurally, they came out of the American Baptist tradition. And then by the time I came along in the 80s, uh, most of those churches had actually, they had kept the name, but had functionally broken away for theological reasons. Of course, the American Baptist is a, what they would call more liberal, not in political terms, but in theological terms, they're a very liberal uh, denomination. So a lot of those churches had kept the name, but broken away. That's the tradition I grew up in. Not a lot of Southern Baptists up there. Um, When I first came to the South in 2004, I was assigned to North Carolina. Everything Southern Baptist, you know, church on every corner. And that's why you get first, second, and third Southern Baptist, because they're all on the same intersection. You got to know which one's which. All those good jokes. So I, I have been a member of a Southern Baptist church. I have, I worship at a Southern Baptist church now, um, but I don't consider myself a Southern Baptist, although I'm very familiar with the denomination. Okay. Yeah. And I think my background is unique in that it was um, a church in Michigan where I grew up that was National Baptist, which was um, an African-American denomination and Southern Baptist. And this was kind of in the 80s, and I think it was kind of a, a push, especially to try to reach out more to among African-Americans. And so you would find that, and especially a lot of the northern cities. Um, and then I was also involved in college at a group. Um, and then when I moved to D.C. after college um, in the uh, early 90s, I was the a member of a church that was both American and Southern Baptist. Um, and that church was probably a little bit more in a moderate to liberal end. And right. I think these days they've actually have left the SBC entirely because of right. all the battles that happened during that time period. So uh, it's something that I, even though I'm not anymore really associated uh, with Southern Baptist, but, and not even really, and not even Baptist anymore, it's something I still follow um, just because of the past history. Right. And it's such a large, especially the SBC, which is the largest Protestant denomination in America. You're talking 14 million people. Mm -hmm. And with the last five years of politics where everything's, you know, evangelical Christians, that's if you want to if you want to gauge where the medium of evangelical conservative Christians are, that's where you put your dipstick and Mm -hmm. check the oil light, because that's that's the biggest group. Um, So it makes sense. But I've always. Um, identify myself as a Baptist, uh, a C-minus Christian, Johnny Cash used to call it. I, I don't try to profess things, but I have, I do have a background in it. I grew up in it. I studied theology academically. I went to Liberty. Um, so I, I, I've studied theology for 20 years, both academically and just because I like it um, as an endeavor and also spiritually. But um, so I've, I, I know those circles really, really well, probably more well than I'm, I really want to. And it's been really fascinating watching what's gone on from when I was a kid, which I grew up as a kid during what they call the conservative resurgence of the SBC, and then seeing the parallels of what's going on and how different it is, even though they're trying to it, It's a fascinating time as an observer of what's going on with that corner of Christianity right now. Well, and that's probably a good place to, to um, start here is 
what is the difference? Because I think we it, it almost seems like we are seeing somewhat of a repeat of what we saw throughout the 80s and early 90s is that when it was between the conservatives and the moderates, um, which ultimately ended with the moderates um, mostly leaving and creating um, two bodies, the Alliance of Baptists and the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Some people want to say that this is just like it, that it's um, moderate and conservative, right. but it seems obviously it's not. It's more, it feels like it's more conservative and ultra conservative. Right. Than- and, it, and it's much more cultural than it is theological, although it's wearing, uh, it's wearing a theological coat. But what's going on right now really isn't theology. Just so we get the nomenclature and the history, real quick history lesson. What what's called the conservative resurgence of the SBC happened in the eighties because in the six in the fifties and sixties you have the fundamentalist movement in evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Those were the hardcore King James only men wear suits, women wear dresses, separation, all that good stuff. Those guys all started breaking away from the Southern Baptist Convention as the population and the economy in America blew up after post-World War II, a lot of that generation, uh, the old line guys. So what happened was then they all left in the 60s, 70s. Now in the 70s, what's left is more moderate to liberal. And then in the 80s, you have the conservative resurgence. Now, the big difference with those guys is they preached separation. And by separation, they actually meant it. Like they, they didn't want anything to do with the world. They didn't want anything to do with politics to a large degree. They didn't really, they just wanted to focus on their churches. And, and that's one of the big differences with what's going on now. So you fast forward now, the conservative, uh, uh, the conservative resurgence in the eighties, uh, he didn't start out with it, but it paralleled Jerry Falwell, moral majority, all that, that was going on at the time. And a lot of the Southern Baptist folks took a look at that and went, and remember you have in the middle eighties, you have the collapse of the televangelist empires where they rate, they came up quick and they went down quick, you know, uh, Tammy Faye and Jim Baker, you had the Peter Popoff scandal, all that happened. So now there's a conservative, Hey, we need to get back to the gospel. We need to get all that kind of stuff. That all happened in the eighties as a reflection of that. So remember things don't happen in a vacuum. They haven't in a sequence. So now fast forward again to now, you have what's called uh, the Conservative Baptist Network. They have dubbed themselves. They want to use the nomenclature of the conservative resurgence, but they're very, very different. They are very, very online. They organize on Twitter. Um, the theology of these, and I know I don't want to talk a lot of theology because you get in the weeds, but uh, the last 20, 25 years, most of the seminaries, with a couple exceptions like Danny Aiken and Southeastern up here in Wake Forest, has gone hardcore reformist theology, which is traditionally not what the Southern Baptist Church. So now you have all these pastors coming in with reformist theology, uh, and that's not the background of the church. So all those things kind of happened in a sequence to come to now. So now those pastors, they call themselves the conservative uh, network, Baptist network. uh, They tried to basically do a takeover at the SBC this last week, and it got put down for, for a large part, and we can get into those details later. But for now, uh, we're two weeks ago, we were a lot of people were thinking full blown schism, like the whole thing is going to come apart. Uh, that's kind of ebbed a little bit, but that's kind of how we got for 70 years from there to here. And that's the big difference. And there's just no way to get around the elephant in the room. The last five years with Donald Trump, the church really latched onto that because you can't preach for 40 years. The best way to dovetail this. For 40 years since the moral majority days, there has been pretty much unity in evangelical Christendom on the right. They all believe the same thing. 
because they were preaching morals. They, they weren't just preaching, you know, Christianity per se. They were preaching traditional moral values, American values, they would call it, you know, things that a lot of people could latch on to, even if they were not Christian. That all changed when President Trump came up, because now you have to make the argument, well, we're, and you heard it, I heard it, we all heard it, we're not electing a pastor, we're not electing a Sunday school teacher, we're electing somebody that will give us what we want on these moral issues. And now you've got the debate of how do you be moral, but put an amoral, let's be kind and call him amoral, for lack of a better way of doing it, in front of as your standard bearer for that. So that's all that's all that's now happened. So now what's the SBC going to be? You have a generational change because those those folks from that, uh, the conservative resurgence, what, 40 years ago now, uh, 35, 40 years ago, they're starting to pass off the scene. Uh, one of their leaders was Paige Patterson. They got caught yeah. up in the sex yeah. scandal. We need to, you got to have that piece to understand it all. They're, they're gone, waning and going. And now you have this intermediate generation trying to figure out what's going on. So that's nutshelled real quick. What's going on with the SBC right now? And about Paige Patterson, he was the guy that basically led the conservative resurgence back in the 80s. Um, and he kind of, you didn't hear about him for a long time. And then all no. of a sudden he kind of came back in with some really shocking news about basically yeah. how treating women who are dealing with abusive situations. Um, can you go in, into a little bit about that? Sure. And, yeah, and, and without getting into the, the the gory details of it, because it, again, these are these are things that statute of limitations. They're civil lawsuits, so it you know getting to what the the actual things that happened is is a, is kind of a messy thing. But we we have enough smoke to know there was some fire here. Mm -hmm. So just to be clear, we're not the courts, but we 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 know what goes on because of what has happened from the effects. Paige Patterson, the reason. He was very influential, but a lot of people didn't know him. He was a seminary president for years and years and years. So, you know, in a, in a denomination, the seminary presidents wield an, a lot of influence, not just because they're training the next generation of pastors. You could have a long conversation about what's going on right now is because of what's happened in the seminaries last 20 years, but that's a separate issue. But so a lot of those leaders now were folks that came up under a Paige Patterson. So even though you didn't hear about them, they're tremendously influential. So he was at Southeastern from 92 to like 2003, and then he went off to Southwestern. Southern Baptists love their directional school. Yeah. Uh, so then he went down to Southwestern. Uh, Southwestern ended up actually, first they, they quasi-retired him to emeritus status to try to make it all go away quietly. That didn't work. They ended up having to just straight up fire him because stuff kept coming out. Now, to be clear, um, the initial allegations was not that he himself was abusive, but that he had covered it up. He had not properly reported it. He had defended and covered up pastors who had either participated in it and or knew about it and continued it, and he he was silencing them. Uh, now there's actually another civil lawsuit that alleges more than that, but you know people can look that up for themselves, but that's the nutshell. So about 2019 or so, uh, he, he basically was excommunicated. They don't have that term, but he, he was shuffled off where he couldn't have anything to do with Southern Baptist Convention. So that's that's only three years ago. That's not that long ago. Uh, so when you take out a major linchpin figure like that, you have the people he influenced. Obviously, he has his own followers within the denomination um, uh, to deal with. And then you just leave this gapping hole of now you've got to go back and like, well, wait a minute. The defining moment of our denomination in the last 35 years, this is the guy that was up front. 
So when all that history we talked about a minute ago, where you talk about where you have this linchpin moment of what are we going to be? Now you've got a second layer underneath that of, well, one of the people we would turn to for advice in this moment, turns out he was the problem or symbolic of the larger problem because it wasn't just him. There's, you remember when you have a figurehead, there's 20, 30, 40, however many people under him that went through that same process with him. So that's the problem with the Paige Patterson situation. And then that leads into the whole concept, the whole issue about abuse, um, especially of women, but of just pastoral abuse. Correct. Um, And, you know, one of the figures that has um, figured highly into that is, uh, and I hope I get her her last name correctly, Rachel Denhalander, um, who I knew through um, the scandal at my alma mater, Michigan State. Yes. um, And then also knew that she was Southern Baptist and... Um, was it in 2019 that they had, or 2018 that they had that conference that Russell Moore put Yeah, together? he had, and and I just did on my own podcast, I just had Jennifer Greenberg on, who actually spoke at that conference. Okay. Uh, she was one of the, and that's why I wanted her there, so she knows all these people, she's friends with her, and, and she said the same thing, was when Russell Moore, who, people that don't know, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the SBC, that's, for lack of a better term, that's the political arm. They do the public policy. They, they're, they're a registered lobbying group. That's what they do. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Russell Moore. Personally, I've, I've, I don't know him. I've met him a few times, various things. But I have a lot of respect for him just generally. Uh, he was trying. He, he held a conference. I forget the name of the conference right off the top of my head. Um, but Jennifer Delholder, like you talked about, uh, Jennifer Greenberg, who is actually a uh, she's from the Presbyterian conservative Presbyterian tradition. He, he brought in these outside voices of like, we've got to address this. We've got to fix this. And um, not to not to cross the streams here, but this is the same time in 2019 that they adopted a resolution on critical race theory at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that they and I hate to put them together, but you have to because the people that hated the one and the people that hated the other use the other as cover to not talk about the other. I didn't say that correctly, but you understand what I'm saying. Yes, like, I well, do. as long as as long as we holler about this one, we don't have to talk about this one. And then the people over here is like, well, we can talk about this one, not this one. That's all going on at once. And then people like uh, like Jennifer and these folks, uh, they have the conference, they have this moment of we're going to break through, and then nothing happened after that. Well, we found out now in the last just here in the last few weeks why we didn't. Uh, there's been audio that came out. Um, Ronnie Floyd, who's the pastor in Arkansas. Uh, used to be First Baptist Springdale. Now it's called Cross Point because they did what everybody else does, and we got to remodel everything. Um, he on tape, and he, to be fair, he says he was taken out of context. I don't believe him, but for what it's worth, and he is on tape making comments to the effect of, and I'm going to paraphrase here, just to be fair to him. Um, my concern is not the victims; it's the base, and by base he means the rank and file Southern Baptist. He was talking about the after effects of that conference and the what's called the executive committee, which is the deciders, the, the people in the Southern Baptist Convention. So that happened in 2019, but we're just now finding out here in the last few weeks why nothing else came out of that because Russell Moore resigned his position. And, and none of this came out of Russell Moore, by the way. He had two internal letters, one to J.D. Gurr, the president of the SBC, and one to the executive committee as a whole, and somebody leaked them, and it wasn't Russell Moore. So this, this wasn't him dirtying it up uh, on the way out, just to be fair to him. And those letters were damning, damning what was in those letters. And then you get the Ronnie Floyd audio on top of it. There's a big problem. And then that's where you get 
to here this last week at the SBC conventions, the messengers themselves, which is what the delegates are called, they're called messengers. Uh, everything they tried to do, they tried to pass, you know, stuff that didn't have anything to do with anything else, like uh, seminary discretionary funding from seminaries. They would raise resolutions and objectives, and they're like, uh, "No, we're not done talking about abuse. Uh, no, we're not giving the executive committee more power." Um, over this unrelated other thing until you agree to an investigation on the main thing, which is the abuse. So those things all run together. And I know that's a lot of cross streams, but it, it goes to show what's happening is like all power structures that have been caught, for lack of a better term, there's a disconnect between the people in the power structure and the rank and file that wants some answers. And this is where we are. And people like uh, Della Holm and Jennifer Greenberg and Russell Moore they they all kind of got caught in the middle, but now we know two years ago at that conference why nothing happened after that. It was made that way, and there needs to be answers for that. It's interesting that he um, that the word base was used because yes, it, it is. You know, you hear that term really in politics, and I've never heard it used. Go ahead and go there, preacher. Religion. I know where you're heading. Go yeah, ahead. I mean. It just, I mean, you, you're hearing again, you've talked about kind of where the, it seems like the streams of GOP politics and, and the SBC are kind of converging. And it didn't sound like a preacher. It sounded more like a politician. And he was, you know, you have to protect the base at all costs. And he's a preacher, but he's the president of the executive committee. Yeah. He's a, and let, let's, let's all be a grown up adults here. He's the CEO of a multi-million dollar company when you're in that position, you can be a pastor, you can be a Christian, that, that's all fine. His job is to be the CEO, like a chairman of the board, which is what the executive committee functions of, of a multi-million dollar, if not a billion, probably close to a billion dollar industry that has 14 million hardcore dedicated customers. Mm -hmm. They have a branding arm, they have the Lifeway merchandising arm, and they have the ELRC, which is the political action committee arm, which is what, of all things, you know, you, you want to talk about things coming around to bite you. They they brought up the ELRC, excuse me, to promote morals externally into the politics. So it's it's very interesting to me. You can call it whatever you want to. I think God just works this way sometimes personally, that it was that political arm that blew the lid off all these other issues of abuse and race and things. And to be clear, again, we, we want to distinguish here. This does not make every Southern Baptist person that sits in a pew every 18 inches an abuser or a or a racist or anything like that definitely because there was things out of the convention that i thought was very uh even as an outside observer that was positive but that those leadership folks and everything rises and falls on leadership it is very clear that there is a lack of a there's a lack of accountability there's a lack of transparency and it's not just outsiders as knows it's internal folks and they want answers and they want them now and they don't want any more excuses about it. About Russell Moore, he has been um, someone that I've really admired, even though I would disagree with him on a lot of theological issues. I think his sure. willingness to be a man of integrity um, and he had to put up with a lot um, especially, of course, during the, the Trump years um, and what he was talking about. But now we know he also had to put up a lot with on other issues, especially race and, right. and the abuse issue. Um, what do you think it means that the SBC has lost someone like him 
that in many ways was the public face of the denomination. He, it's who he was the face to. Like we talked about with the <clears throat> seminary presidents, they weld a lot of influence with the pastors and and the you know the the le- that kind of leadership. Russell Moore welded a lot of influence. How do I say this delicately? He his influence wasn't really with the pastors and the hierarchy and the bureaucratic. And I don't even mean that bad. It's just you have 14 million people, you got to have a bureaucracy that functions. Mm-hmm. He, he that's not who he was admired by. He was admired by normal people because he was kind of the guy that you could go to to okay, explain this to me without some theological term that I don't understand. Uh-huh. Or explain this political why are we doing this political thing without some deep, heavy political terminology around it and explain it to me. And he was great at that. And he, you know, that was his job. He traveled the country and he'd he'd say, Hey, we're doing this political initiative and here's why it matters to you, the guy in the pew or the lady in the pew or whoever that was his job. So that's who he appealed to. So when he gets axed and attacked and, and we now know because he left and we know from these letters, uh, it was internal. It was too, this is not allegations. He has in letters like, he names names. He's like, you told me to my face in this meeting. And I got up and walked out of the meeting because that that's the kind of stuff he, he, you know, this is, this isn't, it, it's, it's shocking. Folks by proxy, the rank and file folks that want a moral, spiritual, godly church, it was like a proxy attack on them mm-hmm. by the folks that they're already having issues with. So that's why it was such a big deal. I, I respect him. J.D. Greer, who just left, the, he just finished his term. He's the same way. And here's the big difference between him and some of the executive committee folks. Everything he did, he came at it with some humility. Mm-hmm. And J.D. Greer, whose who's sermon, although I, agree, I disagree with a few things theologically, I thought his sermon at the SBC, when you consider the man and the moment and the situation, was one of the most remarkable things I've heard from a, from a religious leader in a long time. He stood there and said, you know, our convention was founded on a, on a bad, wicked thing. And we need to fix this and we need to acknowledge it. And he just went right down the line. He's like, our church should not be getting in bed with politics. You get in bed with politics, you get pregnant. Like he just went right down the line and laid it out. We're not going to tolerate abusers. We're not like, I thought it was brilliant, but he's the same way. He approaches it with humility and you have these old guard guys. um, And it goes right back to the abuse issue. Why do they cover up abuse? You have these folks that get into power, whether it's a pastorate or a leadership position or even a patriarchal position in the family and it's like, oh, I'm going to fix this because I'm in charge and this is mine to fix. And Russell Moore never did that. It was always, you know, like, we need to, we need to reason together. We need to work through it. Like, I, I don't know. He's like, we're not in. J.D. Greer brought in minority after minority after minority in the positions of leadership. He said, I didn't even know where to find them. I had to go ask them, like, who do we go get? You know, you have to have humility. And that's what the Russell Moores brought. And it contrasts so sharply with... I'll just name the name, the Ronnie Floyds who want to be belligerent and fight and the old guard guys who's like, no, this is ours. We're in charge. We're going to figure this out. Humility, you know, the meekness from the Bible, not to get theological here. Meekness was not weakness. Meekness was like the breaking of a horse. It's to make it better, make it stronger, make it usable. That kind of humility of Russell Moore contrasted so harshly with what he was experiencing that now that it's come out the public, overwhelmingly backs Russell Moore. That's the difference with that. Moving to the topic of, of race, because we had talked, you talked earlier about critical race theory in 2019. That was the year that they kind of gave 
I guess, tepid approval of yeah. it. And I'll be honest, I, there are some, I would say I have some quibbles with the theory itself, not necessarily the issue, of course, of race that that is still a problem in American society. But what has been, uh, I mean, obviously the next year, uh, the seminary professors came out with a statement um, that was a bombshell. And how has that affected the denomination when it comes to racial reconciliation? I think number one, and this is true in the political realm, not just at the SBC, most of the people online talking about critical race theory have no idea what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't um, because I've asked them. Uh, I did. I, I hosted a radio show the other morning. And I was talking to somebody off air about it and he was talking about it. So I was like, hey, define it for me. And they just kind of look at you. And they're like, well, it's this, this. I actually took courses on critical race theory um, in college for somebody. Let's just let's just go there. For somebody like me, I grew up in rural West Virginia. The only reason we're 99.8% demographically was because we have, you know, ethnic restaurants. Like, it's all white. All white. Um, I didn't really get a diversity in my friends and stuff until I went into the military. Mm. So for somebody like me, an idea, not because, like you, I've got issues with the theory underlying, but the idea that you have an academic exercise where you discuss systematic racism is a good thing because it makes you think of it in an academic way that you would most people would not otherwise be exposed to. And it challenges your thinking as an academic exercise. And then you can apply it. Um, they have an argument against CRT if they talk about it as an academic exercise, like, okay, well, who's that appropriate for that, that, that specific way to talk about race? The problem is these folks are starting to use it without even knowing. They just hear critical race theory and go, oh, well, I'm not going to talk about race. And they just start holding up all their priors. Um, again, I think people, they know there's a problem. The SBC knows there's a problem with race because they've got the data. Um, if I'm, if this isn't me saying it, you can go look on social media from last week. If they had not elected Ed Litton over top of the other gentleman that was running for president, almost every person of color was going to leave the SBC. That's not me saying it. That's them saying it. They said, they like, if you elect him, we're gone. And it wasn't necessarily him personally. It was what he represented and the people backing him. But that's neither here nor there. They were going to leave. They were going to walk. They said, like, we cannot go there if you go here. Uh, Resolution 9 from 2019, which was the CRT, it didn't, and it didn't affirm it. It just said, we need to discuss it, mm-hmm. basically. Um, if, if you get to a place where you can't discuss something, you've got a problem. When your denomination is named the Southern Baptist Convention, and, and I just it just blows my mind. I was like, do, do y'all not understand why it's called the Southern Baptist Convention? It's because the Northern Baptists refused to certify missionaries and pastors and churches, what's called good faith and fellowship, which that means money for the uninitiated, you know, the cooperative agreement. They cut off the Southern churches because they said you cannot have slaveholders. And that's, that's where you get a Southern Baptist Convention. Again, that doesn't make everybody racist as Southern now, but that, that's just what it was. So if you're called the Southern Baptist Convention, you need to have an honest conversation of we haven't done great on race in the past. And it can be a reconciliation thing. And and let's just call it what it is. Folks notice who they're sitting in pews with. You know, it's, it's not good in a society, in a church, spiritually. 11 a.m. on Sunday should not be the most segregated hour in America. And it traditionally is. 
And, and they, they realize that, but the problem is you have some people that see that and look and go, Oh, that's a good thing, which we found out from Russell Moore's letters that some folks have some real prejudices, if not outright racist views on things like that. But then there's the other good people who are going like, well, wait a minute, I have this diversity in my workplace and my school. And why don't I have that on Sunday morning? Is, is critical race theory the perfect tool to get that gap bridged? Maybe, maybe not. Should that be at least a starting point in the conversation to get there? Yeah, it should be. If you immediately shut it down with an honest question, with a bunch of arrogance that delegitimizes the question, ask her, you've just drove people away and you've just reinforced all the prejudices you're trying to fix. So it's a complicated thing, but number one, no, most of these people have no idea what CRT actually means. Number two is if, if they were taught it, would they be open to it? And it goes back to that humility, you know, Russell Moore, J.D. Greer, these guys, they were trying to approach race uh, humi- with some humility and say, we, we don't even know, you know, we want to start. We don't even know. J.D. Greer had a famous thing. He said, I don't even know where to start. I'm just going to start and you help me. That's the way to approach that. Not a top down. Everybody's got to do this. Everybody's got to do that. I hope that's what they're going to do. I see signs that that's what people want in the rank and file. Um, and hopefully that's the direction it goes because there needs to be a, a integration, which is a word people kind of, oh, integration, you know, they go, all, all that means is a togetherness there. And that includes on Sunday mornings or whenever you do your church services. And if we can't figure out how to do that, even if we theologically degree, disagree on each other, can we have a, can we have a picnic together? Can we have a, a social you know, can we do a clothes drive or a food drive? Can we do something to start bridging these gaps? Is CRT the best thing for that? I don't know. Do we need something? Yeah. So if we can start CRT and go to whatever does get us there, fine by me. I just want to get us there or at least get us the first two steps to get us there. I think I'm not alone. I hope I'm not. I don't think you are alone. One of the things that was interesting about 25 years ago, I did a, uh, I was doing some freelancing for Baptist Press. On, on, and this was at the time that they were, it was kind of the start of putting together this uh, resolution about apologizing for slavery that was presented mm-hmm. and passed in, at the 95 um, annual meeting. Uh, it was interesting reading, um, and I did another related article to that about um, African-American Southern Baptists and what was fascinating was, of course, they were talking about some of the issues that they were facing back then, that they thought that the SBC wasn't facing, um, such as and and you know that they weren't really focusing as much on race as they should, um, that they weren't really even really focusing on issues related to that, like poverty or or other issues. Um, and it was also fascinating because one of the articles that I had to do is reading on some of the, what were the books that they were reading? Um, one right. of the books that they were reading that was memorable was a book that I read back in the 90s, which in some ways has been considered part of um, critical race theory is uh, Faces at the Bottom of the Well by Derek Bell. Um, it's, it's a good read. It's I d- didn't agree with everything, but it's, he, tells stories, um, he uses fiction in many ways to talk about race. Um, and there were some other books that they were, these pastors were talking about. 
And looking back at that story made me think, is it part of the thing that they are afraid of is that if they talk about this, that they're going to be confronted with things that will make them uncomfortable or people that will make them uncomfortable because, you know, African-Americans maybe bring up things that they don't want to hear or don't huh. want to admit. I don't, there's probably a big theological word that I should know for it, but last I checked that your spiritual growth is not supposed to be a comfortable thing. Um, mm-hmm. And that's true in all forms of life, not just in, in the spiritual realm. Um, comfort is a big, you, you can't, I'm sorry, you can't not talk about this. Evangelical Christianity in the last 40 years has become a, let, let me phrase it this way, just to, to not get too in the weeds with it. Um, it's become a peer-to-peer growth system. Now, you can do a peer-to-peer gospel growth system that we find throughout Christianity. That's, that's fine, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the marketing method. We, we have designed churches to be as comfortable as possible. Mm-hmm. We, the church growth movement, which is the dominant thing uh, for what, how long has it been since Rick Warren's book came out now? 30 years, probably 25, 30 years since Purpose Driven Church. Yeah. Um, mega churches. Uh, and nothing wrong with a mega church in and of itself. It's not what I'm saying. Uh, multi-site churches where you still have the same pastor for, you know, in and of itself, not, nothing wrong with that. The, the problem we've got into is if, if, you're, if your point is to grow for the sake of growth, you have to make people comfortable to do that. And when you have peer-to-peer marketing scheme, like you, you have all these churches using literally the same marketing software that companies use. They, they use the exact same one for email listings and all that. Again, it's fine. But what happens is you start getting a mentality of, well, we're going to grow, so this person's going to tell it. And what happens is you end up with these very comfortable churches that are full of people that are exactly like they already were. And, and again, I don't, it's a cultural problem beyond spiritual problem because people want to be comfortable. So then when you take, let, let's, let's call it what it is, you need, if you're building a church, you're a pastor, you, you need that middle up middle to upper middle class to wealthy people because those are your tithers, those are your beneficiaries of your churches, those are the people you start catering to. Those people are comfortable. Are those mid level career type people? Are they really going to be chomping at the bit to be like, oh well, let's let's talk about you know racial theory or structural racism or uh, systematic abuse and power structures? That's really uncomfortable stuff for people who are used to hey, I'm at the stage of my life where I want what I want and I've, I've earned some consideration here. That's really tough stuff for some people. But at the same time, if we're going to have an honest conversation about helping people, not denominations, not churches, people, if you're going to help people, you have to have a conversation about how to reach people who are different from you, who have a legitimate grievance against not you, but the history of people that were like you. You, you got to at least hear them out. And again, it goes, I keep, I hate to keep saying humility over and over again, but you got to have some humility because if you can't take that for what I've found with a lot of people, this even goes on Twitter and online. If you can kind of just toughen up and take that first blast of invective from folks and take a little humility and then try to reach them. Now, after the first one or two, if they're not, then you, you probably just need to walk away. But a lot of times after that first thing, they just get out whatever their priors are, or whatever their experiences are. 
you'll you'll find out they'll start opening up a little bit because like oh well they didn't just react to me they didn't react in anger they didn't just walk off like all these other people do they actually heard me out and then you can go if we can't do that in a church environment which is you know as should be a pretty safe space for that stuff we got no chance in the wider body politic or in culture if if we can't do that in our churches and i don't care what your denomination or faith belief if you can't do that there we got no chance on the streets and in our politics and in our culture it's that important more humility more listening and and sometimes you just got to eat a little bit of stuff from somebody who who's been done wrong and you just got to go yeah i know it wasn't me personally but let them have it out let them say their piece and then we'll try to reconcile Hmm. Sorry, so, that was too preachy for the preacher. I'm sorry. Nope, that's okay. And I think the word that you were trying to get at is sanctification. Yeah, nice big word. <laughs> um, so with the election of um, Ed Litton as the president, um, one came as a surprise, and it seemed to come as a people being thankful that kind of it seemed like crisis averted. But is it? I mean, is the crisis really averted or is it just being postponed? No, it's on pause. Um, now, Ed Litton, uh, for folks that don't know him, he, he's involved with what's called a pledge group. Uh, the pledge group has been upfront on stuff like uh, racial. They, they actually did a, uh, a uh, I, f- I forget, it came, and it came out of Baptist Press of all places. Uh, it was called the Deep South Joint Statement on Gospel and Racial Reconciliation and Justice. When you put that series of words in a, something that says Deep South, that's going to be controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he's that guy in the convention right now where he, he's trying. Um, he's out in front. Uh, that statement um, came out of the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey. That, that, that's the environment that that statement came out of. Uh, to, to give credit where that would have been unheard of 10, 15 years ago. Um, but that's who this guy is. He, he, he not only talks about it, he walks it. He put himself out there. Uh, he didn't really seek this presidency. He was a, uh, um, I don't want to say compromise candidate cause that was Albert Moeller, but, uh, for lack of a, by process of elimination, it was like, uh, these folks over here are going to win unless you stand up. And he agreed to, to his credit. Um, I, I don't really know a whole lot about him other than just what I've read, but, but these are the things he's done recently in lines with things like the, with the racial issues that he he's actually out on front of it with his, so he, there seems to be a thing. Now, the problem with that is as he continues to push forward, the people that already had a problem with it are going to continue to have a problem with it. Plus now they're mad. Their guy didn't win. Um, they're not going to go away. Uh, there's other positive signs, but just the race, the abuse thing, the resolution on abuse that passed. Um, I think it's very important to give Southern Baptist credit here. The, and I was actually messengering with somebody that was in the committee that was writing the resolution. They were literally like, I'm scared. I pray for us because if this fails, I'm going, I, I don't think I can stay here if this fails. It was a resolution that anybody that was in a pastoral position that either was a part of abuse or covered it up was permanently banned from leadership. It was the messengers themselves once they, and this is Robert's rule of order. For folks that don't know, this is basically a massive church business meeting with 16,000 people. It's chaos. But when they brought it to the floor to vote on it, the people, the messengers, they amended it. And they said, no, we don't want it pastors. It's any position of leadership or trust. They actually made it, the people themselves made it stronger than what the committee recommended it to be. 
and they passed that resolution that um, I forget the exact wording, but it's basically any leadership of, of tr- any position of leadership, not just pastor. And that was specific language by the committee because they're like, well, this is what we think has the best chance of getting through. And, it, and But it passed. And you still had people coming on or going, well, we don't like this loss of control. Folks, you are not equipped. There is no pastor in America. There's no church organization. There's no denomination that is equipped for crime. If there's a crime, you report the crime. You can't fix crime. You can, you can minister to the sinner after he's been gone through the criminal justice system. But you can't fix a crime, and the only thing you can do is commit a crime to cover the crime. Report the crime. We got that out of the way. But that it passed, and they actually made it stronger, so there's hope. But there's that, there's that. And Jennifer, when I talked to her about these issues, she, she, she called it what it is. She said, this is arrogance. This is arrogance that we take our, our belief system, and we can take something like the gospel and forgiveness and reconciliation but in our arrogance, we try to apply it to people that we don't have any business trying to fix for our own benefit and our own church's benefits. So whether it's race or abuse or whatever, these issues are not going away. I see positive signs. I don't want to just bash the SBC because I saw a lot of positive signs and the signs came from the people, the rank and file. You know, they want better, most of them. And then there's this cabal of folks these that they want it the way they want it and if they got to burn it down to get it, they want. Now they did a lot of big talking about if they didn't get to where they're going to leave. I don't think they're going to. Uh, we're going to find out. So hopefully it'll die down a little bit. But is it going to go away? No, because how long have we been talking about race since this country was founded and before? How long has abuse been an issue? As long as there's been more than three or four people on God's earth, there has been an abuse issue because these are people issues. Is it going away? No. Has it been pressed pause? Yes. Has a full-blown schism that would have been bad for millions and millions of people been avoided for the moment? Yes. Is it going to come up next year? Oh, yeah, definitely. And probably a lot louder and a lot worse because it's going to be an election year next year with the midterms. And all those political things are going to come right back up. So one question or that I have is, since we do see this kind of almost symbiosis between the GOP and the SBC, if one gets better, would that lead to change with the other? Or are they not really as connected in that way? It's... <laughs> uh, you know, how, how, how do you negotiate with a tumor? Um, you know, you, if you got to leave it or you kill everybody, or if you cut it out, you, you may, I, I don't know. Let, let, let's use our humility here. I don't know. Um, the GOP is in a, I don't think you can call it crisis because they pretty much decided what they want to do right now. You know, they're um, way beyond crisis. Yeah. yeah I don't, and I'm, I'm a registered uh, in the, the state I'm registered in. It's called unaffiliated. You don't get, mm-hmm. you don't get in, you know, some places I'm unaffiliated. I long ago made that decision. Um, the, the problem with the political folks, and again, you know, there's plenty of people that want to sit in their pews on Sunday and not bring politics into it. I'm not, a, I'm not against a, a, a pastor. I think a pastor should address politics on, especially on things like, you know, race and abuse and things like, of, of course he should be talking about it. Should we talk, be talking about a specific bill of legislation about the budget? And that I don't know that that's where we should be going with those sorts of things. Uh, you should have some autonomy and some plurality in your church where you can, do you really want to have a church where you can't have a blue dog Democrat as a member of your church? 
or, or even a progressive that's because, you know, people are not monoliths, you know, even amongst progressive folks, there's a wide, for example, we just, I just had this conversation uh, Thursday when I was down in, uh, they, they, they have a local GOP organization. He's seeing a lot of very liberal, very progressive people come into their organization because they're environmentally liberal, they're politically liberal, but they have school choice concerns that they want to address. And there's a big sex scandal in the school system down there right now that's driving that. So they're finding a common ground. Do we really want churches where we can have no common ground based on who you voted for? The problem is, is if, you, if you're going to have that lockstep of this utter insanity of if you don't, this, this candidate, uh, like a Donald Trump, well, he's God's chosen candidate. And if you don't vote for him, you're like, if you start doing that garbage, you have so shuttered down the the amount of people you're going to reach with your message of your church that it's 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 basically become um, I'll just use the word it becomes incestuous because it's just this one thing and nothing else matters outside of that and you, again you can put the theology code on it you can put all the spiritual terminology you want on it but it, but it you know your idol is not that gold thing up in front that you're down to your idol is what you spend all your time energy and mindset on. And if that's all you're thinking about is politics, then then that is your religion now. And if your church is all about politics, then I I don't know my understanding of the definition of a church. I would I would question whether that's what you really are anymore or not. And I know that sounds harsh, um, but I, I the church I had worshipped at for several years, very small country church, I had to stop going. And I didn't make a fuss. I didn't make a big scene. I just very quietly talked to the pastor. I was like, look, I, I can't. I'm not talking about Donald Trump in Sunday school every Sunday. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. That's not what I'm here. It's not what I need spiritually. Um, and I'm the church I'm at now is actually a man who was my pastor before. Does he men- mention politics from politics? Sure. Do I agree with him on everything? No, but it doesn't override everything. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, and it's not a, it's not a hammer every Sunday for 35, 40 minutes because of whatever's on Fox news this week or on the Twitter this week. That's not the role of the church. The church is supposed to be working for the people. Um, and people is politics, but politics can become an idol and a great big old. Well, and I think we're in an age where, you know, there's always this fear that if you don't, aren't amenable to change, that you don't um, grow. And I right. think we're in an age right now where people, that's not people's concern anymore. They're not interested in about whether they can reach out to, to more people. It's more tribal that they want to have their little tribe and that's about it. And that's, you know, it, it's not even just Southern Baptist or, or Republican. I think it's just, oh, no. just in, it's just kind of the zeitgeist right now. It's just, we're not interested in, in building bridges. The American church isn't. There, there, is, such a, there is such a gap right now you look at um, Christianity overseas in different parts of the world, how glaringly wrong. And, and th- again, this is an SBC or mainline or even the Catholic church in America is very different from Catholic church overseas. And other faith groups have the same, you know, uh, the, the, the American culture has not aged well with spiritual matters. No. And, and I'm not talking politics. I'm just talking the, the age we live in. When you look at what, uh, my father does uh, for years and years and years, went to Jamaica once or twice a year. And I'm not talking about the, the touristy areas. He went to what's called Bethel town. It's up in the Hills. You have to have a four drive truck or van to get to the church. You cannot physically get there. You got to hike up there. Um, 
And it's a church that he'd go down there and they'd work with these people. The pastor was the only one that had a job of anybody in the whole church. And he's like, and when they go down there, he's, he's completely different theological to beliefs, completely different. They're actually Pentecostal. He was a very fundamental kind of mainline Baptist. Um, and they would have those conversations. They're like, um, why do you go there? And Jocelyn, the past, pastor in Jamaica, he just looked at me like, you're the only ones that would come. Of course, I'm going to work with you on things. You know, you're, you're the only ones that come. You're the only ones that cared. Um, I, I think we, we need to understand that our American, we have this real tunnel vision thing of what the church is based on the American church. And that's only, I don't even know the number, maybe, maybe 100 million or so of Christians out of a billion in the world. Our, our American version of Christianity right now is very materialistic, is very online, is very built around the culture instead of vice versa. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not how it is in most of the world. So even though they say that, I think it's important to note that like part of this is where we need to just hold our hands up and go, may, maybe the American version of this is not the exportable great product of other things like America, where we export freedom, we export human rights, we we try to do all these other great things. Spiritually speaking, we're probably not doing real great right now. I would agree with you on that. Um and like, I don't think it's just within the evangelical world. I think it's mainline. I think it's Catholic. Yeah, I, think I just so too. think it all over. It's we are not well. And we're growing, you know, the spiritual numbers are growing other places of the world and ours are going through the floor. Yep. So yep. at some point you go, well, wait a minute. If the church is growing in China where they're throwing people in camps, they've, they've got none. We got everything. Mm-hmm. what's going on. And, and you can go through church history and understand that, you know, persecution times are when the church actually grew because mm-hmm. you get cut down to fighting weight. We got, we got a non-fighting weight, you know, we got, <laughs> we, we got a late stage fighter that's not in shape right now and it shows. And so the SBC can talk about all the churches they are losing because of Trump. There's probably a lot to that or the scandals. There's probably a lot to that. I think a lot of it's just stuff they need to, folks need to get in the mirror and they need to start with their own churches and their own families and look in the mirror and go, okay, why do I go to church? Not because of the denomination or why am I here? Am I doing anything productive here? Or am I just showing up out of habit and because they make me feel good? Those, those are spiritual questions people have to answer individually because corporately you can't fix that. Mm-hmm. Well, one final question on S- the um, SBC before we move on to uh, sure. briefly on to Afghanistan is where do you see the Southern Baptists going in the next five to 10 years? Obviously, it sounds like uh, this battle is, I won't say paused, but it's kind of doomsday hasn't happened yet. Yeah, to but, be continued. Yeah, but what happens in the future? Um, obviously, we don't know, but um, past is prelude, so let's start with that. When you had the the last conservative resurgence, you had um, quite a few leave and break off and go. They either went mainline or did their own thing or just drifted off into the ether. I think at some point, these, these um, I don't even want to call them conservative elements because I don't think that's fair to conservatism. This conservative Baptist network is, um, quite frankly, rather self-serving. They have a very narrow view of... Christianity and the gospel, both in my opinion. I don't think they're theologically sound or morally sound, but that's just my opinion. Um, at, at some point, that is a that is an incongruent element that, that something's going to happen. Uh, it's just, it's just it, it is. They're either going to get mad and leave, or they're going to get their way, and there's no, 
there's no assaging what those folks want. So it's a matter of time. They're either going to get what they want. They're going to get a takeover and they're going to leave. Well, if they take over, everybody else is going to leave. And now you're going to have, let's call it a third, just to have a number to play with. It's probably 35, 40% based on the voting we just saw. Is their number going to grow? I don't think so. I think their number is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller, but they may have enough stroke to get it shoved through. So, so either you're going to get a split one way or the other here, somewhere in here. Is it next year, five years from now, years from now? I don't know. I think the 2022 election is going to be ugly in ways we haven't seen in American politics in a long time for a lot of reasons. Uh, that's going to trickle if you have hyper political uh, Christian subsect groups like that. That means they're going to be super ugly about it. So that might be the damn. I think the rank and file uh, folks, as we saw from the voting, they want things like reconciliation, racial reconciliation. Um, they probably don't even know what that looks like. I don't. I don't know that people of color know what that looks like either. Um, they. I know what they aspire to. Uh, hopefully, they can sit down and start finding a way to figure out how to do that where they do feel welcome and they do. They do find a way to work those things out. The abuse thing has to be fixed. Nothing else that I wrote this in ordinary times. I said this on my podcast. I said it anybody that ever asked me. If if you tolerate cover up and excuse abuse in your church, it doesn't matter what else you do. Nothing else matters what you do if you're abusing people and covering up and excusing it. That resolution was a good first step, but it's a first step. They, they've got a lot of work to do on the abuse stuff because if, if your leadership has no moral authority, then nothing, you can have all the Bible verses on God's earth. It's not going to matter because nobody trusts you. And that's what happened at the convention. They're like, we don't trust you. That's what they were saying. Like, no, you can't have any more power until you're investigated. We, we don't trust you. Um, I believe Ed Linton is a good man. I think he's trusted, at least right now. Hopefully he does some of those things. If they can get the abuse thing and the executive committee cleaned out and at least have some transparency on the abuse, then you've got a chance to on the racial reconciliation and all these other issues, because now you've got somebody like he could say, like, look, I know you're nervous. I know this is uncomfortable. Trust me. This is good for us. Let's go this way. Um, so, again, I don't think you can split those two things off because they both get to the same core root problem of morally as human beings. What are you going to be and figure out what the church is, not the other way around? Because the other way around, you're always going to wind up in a mess. Mm -hmm. I hope that happens. Uh, I think they're going to keep losing membership, though. I really do. Uh, there's too much. I don't want to get into theology because I have my opinion. Everybody else has theirs, too. I, I, I think the, the reform theology that their pastors are, are preaching now with church discipline, they're really big on church discipline and pastoral authority, which traditionally, you know, Baptist church, you, you have a lot of electoral power as a member. Uh, Meshing that sort of hardline church discipline stuff with the social justice and racial and abuse stuff that needs to be dealt with is going to be a real trick for somebody to pull off. I don't know how, because how do you go like, oh, I'm going to have, we're going to have total authority over the church, but we're going to give it all up in just these three areas. I don't know how you do that. Maybe I'm just a simple minded hillbilly, but I've been in management a few times. I don't know how they do that. I pray they do. I there there's probably some some leaders that are great enough to do that. I have skepticism, but I pray they do do that. I want the I want I want the Southern Baptist Convention to succeed. I want mainline denominations to succeed. I want the Catholic Church in America to succeed because those are all reaching disparaging groups. And and I want to see multiracial, multicultural churches. Um, not because there's anything wrong with having uh cultural churches and cultural fellowships, 
but because we're still all humans in the planet and the, and how are you going to have any kind of spirituality where we can't at least worship together or at least eat together or pray for each other or do service in the community together. So I pray it gets better. The country would be better with a healthy Southern Baptist convention. Christianity's healthier with a Southern Baptist. The secular world would be better with a healthy Southern Baptist because they do tremendous disaster. I don't know if people realize the disaster relief. Those They have worldwide capability for disaster relief. Like they have top-notch world-class disaster relief uh, for stuff. The secular world needs that. So I hope they fix all this. I hope it's a healthy organization. Um, I, I hope the good people, like the person I was texting with, was, I was like, fight the fight. I hope they listen, but you got to fight the fight. And they did, and this they won. And I pray fervently that they continue to win and the convention gets better. Okay. Well, one um, quick question that I wanted to ask of you is um, related to Afghanistan. And... Um, we know that coming in September is supposed to be the date that uh, we pull out of Afghanistan entirely. There has been a lot of worry about what will happen after um, that happens. And um, I'm hoping to talk to someone next month kind of about that upcoming withdrawal. And what does that mean? But um, knowing that you um, served in Afghanistan, I'm curious uh, to get your opinion of what does it mean for uh, total withdrawal? Um, are there any other ways between either having the military stay there or and, or and leaving? Is there some way of kind of working that out? Yeah, it could have been what we've done the last two and a half, three years, which is basically very small scale. Um, you continue to do the coin, the counterinsurgency stuff. Uh, you can continue to prop up the government. You have, you know, a a pretty comparatively speaking, understand a comparatively light footprint of people in in country, uh, and you lose ten to ten to fifty guys a year because that's what we've been doing. It's been down in the twenties late, late, and I'm talking combat deaths, not you know, you always have accidents and things like this. Uh, and you, is it worth? 20 to 50, 10 to 50 American lives every year to keep doing what we're doing and, and just maintain a status quo that frankly isn't working for anybody anyway. That's a, that's a big question. That's a harsh question. Like how many, how is it worth 30 lives, 50 lives, whatever the American lives are. And remember you're only one car bomb from 50, 60 casualties or whatever the situation is it worth it? The American people consciously either by omission or commission have decided it's not. It's not worth it. That's what that's there's no appetite for us to be there. That's just the practical issue. What does that mean? Are we going to get, you know, Hanoi part two with the, the collapse of the government? And people forget Hanoi was two or three years after we left. It took it took time uh, and there was outside forces and all that. Uh, but we're not Pollyanna. We understand that, you know, they're going to outweigh us. And we've known for years and what it's been 20. God almighty what, 22 years, 23 years, it's, um, I, I don't even know how to parse it because we, we vaguely know what's going to happen. There's going to be death chaos and a regression. We know the little bit of human rights, especially for things like women uh, and uh, the tribal and they don't have a great, uh, they don't have a great diversity in, in race and things, but they do have tribal diversities of and we all we talk about travel and politics travel in the real world is a very very ugly brutal thing and they got it and they've had it for thousands of years 
um, we're surrendering and withdrawing without achieving an objection. That's just the harsh truth of it. Uh, are they going to stand on their own? I hope so. I don't think so. I think at some point you're going to have a civil war. It's going to be what it's always been. One, one thing that struck me so much about Afghanistan was you go to somewhere like Iraq, it's a civilization. There's freeways, there's four lane, what we would call interstate highways, there's buildings, there's irrigate outside of the cities in Afghanistan. There's nothing like they didn't have mm -hmm. a lot of those places don't even have roads. And I grew up in the country, man. I, I was like, there, there's nothing here. Um, I, I feel mostly for the people. Because uh, it's going to be a humanitarian disaster, especially for women, because we we know the ideology of things like the Taliban that's going to come in, and things like girls going to school and all that. That um, it's a lot of it is our own fault. Let's let's be very clear here. There has been a tremendous amount of grifting and profiteering off this conflict. Uh, we have spent trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that were completely unnecessary to the actual effort that we stated that we are there for. Um, so this is, this is gravity to me. The, this is what we've known since about four or five years into it. This was going to be the ending because nobody wanted to, nobody wanted to stop the ending, for lack of a better term. They all knew it was falling apart. They knew that all we were going to do was surge and come back and surge and come back. And we've done it for 20 years. At some point, it had to end. Uh, and it's they've made the decision it's going to end now i don't even blame the people that made the decision because uh we can't do this forever and it's going to be be ugly and at some point down the road it's going to bite us in the tail i have no doubt uh maybe 10 years 15 years 20 years it's going to come back to haunt us but here we are as somebody that was there and has had friends there and you know i i have such mixed feelings on it but the overwhelming feeling on it is just sadness because we could have done a lot more good than we did. Um, the good that we have done, I fear, is going to get wiped away very, very quickly. And then you're into this thing of, was it worth it? I, I don't want to ever get nihilistic and say, no, it wasn't worth it at all, because there, there's real people's lives that were bettered and saved and all that. Once it's all wiped away, if it descends into chaos, like I, fear, I hope I'm wrong. I, I fear it's going to those questions are only going to get louder. And I think history is going to judge America very, very harshly uh, that if, if you're going to do it, do it. Uh, we didn't do it. We did what we wanted to do. And then we played footsies with it for 15, 16 years. And because we didn't want to admit, we didn't want to admit what was happening. Uh, so that's, that's it. I hate to say it is what it is, but the, this is the bed we made and now we're going to lay in it and now we're going to have to live with it. And we're going to have, we're going to have some reconciliation. There's that word again with the, with the wider world on, because we, we took a prestige hit. We took a manpower hit. We took a, a human cost hit and it's Afghanistan's people going to pay for it. And we're going to have to live with it. So it sounds like basically, and I, this is actually something I haven't heard people say as much, but it sounds like it's a lost opportunity that there was something that, we could have done, but it just, we didn't really want to do it. And, and hindsight's twenty twenty, So I don't want to ever say that we could have done, we could have done better than we did. I think um, once you root out, you know, we, we had the Taliban push back into the wasteland areas and, you know, you could secure the cities pretty much in perpetuity. 
you mm-hmm. got to remember, we have troops in Germany and Japan right now. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, there's a lot of cultural differences, and those are, and we, but you know, we didn't have a Marshall Plan for Afghanistan. We had a KBR. <laughs> Not to pick on KBR, it's a fine company, but you get the idea. We, yeah. we had a we had a we had a uh, industrial military complex plan of, oh well, we'll just politically do what we have to do and do, and then you have all these outside financial factors, and then nobody wants to step back and say we lost. We didn't lost. We frittered it away because we didn't have a better plan than to just keep doing what we were doing. And while you're doing that, you know the the enemy is just waiting you out. Because they don't need massive infrastructures. They don't need political pressures. They don't have to win an election every four years. They can just sit up in those mountains and keep, you know, training the next generation to hate you even more than the last generation. And they're just going to wait. And now they're going to get their day. And could it have been done differently? I think so. I think you could have done a lot of things differently. Uh, Does it matter right now? Nope, because you're going to have a, I fear you're going to have a bloodbath. Uh, I think it's very fair for us to say that our our government and military leadership has a lot of answering to do. Um, and they're already doing this. I know, I know the, the military leadership has, you know, they, they're teaching it. The, the military does learn uh, from their mistakes. We remember the military we have now came out of the mistakes of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the military was in a bad place in the seventies. I just talked to our mutual friend, John McCumber the other day. That's the, he was in, in the mid to late seventies. And he, t- he, he's like, it was, it was an amazing transformation, how much it got better because they learned the lesson. I hope we learned the lesson and we come back with a better military culturally. Not, we can kill anybody in the world pushing a button in Nevada. That's, that's not the problem. When, when, where we go, when we go, what are we there for? What's the goal? And how are we going to have partnerships to make sure it holds up when we leave? That's the stuff we got to get better on. I hope we get a better military out of this and I hope we get a better country out of this. And I hope we get a better world out of this because this is a heavy price to pay. We better make it worth it at least in learning the lesson since we didn't want to prevent it from happening and getting bad in the first place. I hope that makes sense, but that's, that's how mm, I'm, it does. that's where I'm at. And I do, I try not to think about it too much to be honest with you, but that that's where I've come out on it is okay. Now the price has been paid, you know, the mistakes made, the price has been paid. Can we make that price worth it in something better down the road? I hope so. I sure hope so, but it's going to take some better leadership than what we got right now. Okay. Well, Andrew, thank you for this. This has been a great conversation on both issues. Um, and I hope that this was has been helpful for people out there to understand, um, especially with the Southern Baptists, because I, I agree with you how important the SBC is just because of its size and history. And um, like you, it's important to hopefully have them succeed into um, doing what they're doing because it's important not just for them but for all of us so thank you thank you i appreciate you i respect you greatly in your opinion and uh anytime i get to talk to you i appreciate and we'll do it my friend so thank you very much all right thank you Thank Andrew for being my guest today. It 
was a pleasure to have him as a guest and look forward to seeing him on the podcast again sometime in the near future. And I also want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. There are, are a lot of podcasts out there, and I am very thankful for your support. Make sure that you visit the website and rootpodcast.org. While you're there, you can sign up to be on our mailing list for the, our newsletter, listen to past episodes, and read past articles. While you're at the, at the website, you can also make a donation to support this podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever podcast platform you listen to so that you won't miss any episodes. If you like what you're hearing, leave a rating or written review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you want to know more about the Southern Baptists and the larger evangelical community, please listen to my recent interview with Nap Nasworth. That's it for this episode of Enroute, Notes on Religion, Politics, and Culture. I'm Dennis Sanders, the host. Take care and Godspeed.